Hello and welcome to this episode of the Waking Up to Autism podcast. Um, my name is Claire, I am founder of Waking Up to Autism and as a lot of you know I love to invite some really special guests to come and join me on the podcast. Primarily I love to invite neurodivergent adults to come and share their story and their journey because we're all about shining a light and allowing people who are best in the knowledge with regards to helping parents know how to support their children is neurodivergent adults themselves. Um, But I also love to invite other parents and carers um, of children who are neurodivergent just to share their experience. And today's guest is a really special one. It's a lady that I follow and have followed for a while on Instagram, Jess Warner. Some of you may already be aware of her. On Instagram, her account is the only girl in the house. Um, The clue is definitely in the title. She is surrounded by wonderful boys, her partner and three sons and two stepsons, I believe. She can correct me in a minute if I'm wrong. Um, And the account is is an amazing one. So if you love sort of interior design and all the loveliness of of life, I always look at it with real envy. Um, But what Jess has an incredible aspect as well is keeping it really real, sharing the chaos and the ups and downs of life Um, and the reason for inviting Jess on today is that one of her sons is neurodivergent and he is a teenager Um, and I do have an ulterior motive because I have a neurodivergent nine-year-old son so I am I am currently on that that pathway of of Um, the teenage years so I am very keen to to hear from Jess but I know a lot of the parents that I work with um, have teenage sons um, who are neurodivergent and as wonderful and as colourful and as creative as that can be there is also some sort of bumps and challenges along the way as well so um, I'm just you know not that I'm expecting Jess to give us all the answers on how to make it all rosy but just to share her insight I know is going to be so um, valued by a lot of you listening so hello Jess welcome hello what an intro got I pressure now um I hope I can offer all the insights um, that people hope for but hello thank you so much for having me absolute pleasure yeah the the pressure of of just this kind of vision of people picking up their notebooks and pens kind of (laughs) oh my goodness um I will just also say that I've just said to Jess I am in my office um obviously you could be listening this on any day of the week at any time but it's a it's a Friday late morning and literally um a lot of people have decided to suddenly congregate at my office so we're just going to roll with any background noise so if you do hear background noise that is what it is. Um, but just to start off, Jess, could you just, um, for, for, for our sake, just let us know sort of how old Hugo is at the moment, what kind of age that he received his neurodivergent diagnosis, and just a bit of a brief history on, on that process for you as a family getting to that point. Yeah, so it, it feels like it's been a lifetime to get where we are and the reality is it has been Hugo's lifetime. So Hugo is now 15 years old. He's in year 10 um, in a mainstream school. Um, Mm -hmm. And we received Hugo's diagnosis only in March of 2021. Wow. So when Hugo was 14. Mm -hmm. So really late on. Um, But that's not to say that things weren't going awry um, in his life from an early stage. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, all the early indicators were there. that Hugo was ticking to a different talk to the rest of his peers. Um, Predominantly, we noticed, obviously, when he was surrounded by a lot of his peers in preschool and nursery, um, the way he played, the way he interacted with his peers, all those things. 
Um, it carried on throughout primary school, you know, really early on, on his second or third day, his, his reception teacher was coming and, and saying that mm. you know, he was doing things that weren't okay. Mm. Um, this carried on throughout primary school and into secondary school, um, that Hugo was just finding it really, really hard to do what is considered the right thing. Um, but at every single stage, um, we were told it was a phase or he would grow out of it, or it's because he's a boy, or it's mm. because I'm separated from his dad, or a whole host of other things that yeah. could easily be used as excuses. Um, but in my gut, mm. um, I knew Hugo was perfect. It wasn't a phase. It was Hugo's needs just not being met. And if his needs were going, if his needs were met, he could be the boy that I know he could be. Yes. Um, so, I just, it, it got to a point where I just had to really just insist that um, mm. assessment and diagnosis were um, carried out just so we could get a bit of understanding in the mainstream system with Hugo. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. And I think that's a really key um, part as well. And a lot of the parents that I work with, we always come back to that gut instinct. Mm. Which is so powerful, isn't it? So I suppose, and I think what's really difficult for a parent is when you have that gut instinct, but teachers are saying, oh, he's been difficult, he's obstructive. And you think, actually, and I don't know about, and I know we've spoken briefly, and obviously Hugo's very specific about not disclosing his exact um, diagnosis. But I know with regards to my son, he has a demand avoidant presentation. And so actually, he's not defiant. It's just the way in which things are presented. And like you say, when needs are met, and there's a respect there, things can be so different can't they so how did you feel when he finally got that diagnosis oh I cried (laughs) I I cried big tears of joy yeah it was relief I wasn't going completely mad yes I did know my son better than anyone else Mm -hmm. Um, so it it's concerning to me that so many professionals, not just individuals, but so many professionals um, along the way had disregarded um, my pleas for support and help. Mm. And they had labelled Hugo as naughty. Um, And once you get that label, it's really blooming hard to shift it because it spreads like wildfire within a primary school or a secondary school. um, That if a kid's naughty, um, before you know it, everyone seems... To, to be aware of it so yeah the the diagnosis when the words were uttered that he goes neurodivergent and it was official and we could get that bit of paper mm-hmm. um, it meant the world it really did because as I say it, it just confirmed that I wasn't going mental yeah yeah absolutely and I think that's another really key aspect is a lot of parents it's, it's a real mental load Mm. going through it and fighting for that assessment and diagnosis and and yeah you do you then start to think well maybe I am going mad maybe mm. my child is naughty you know you know am I looking at this through rose tinted glasses you know and and making excuses for him because oh, yeah. like you say and, and mud sticks doesn't it and that naughty child and it's it's a really negative narrative for a child of a primary age to hear all the time well you, you know you start to doubt yourself Hugo mm. really starts to doubt himself yeah um and I think I I still feel really bad and really guilty for the fact that for a long time, I believed the professionals knew better. I believed the GPs, the health visitors, the teachers would all know more than me. So when they were telling me 
for years that he was naughty that you know it's behavioral we can change this if we just do this or if you just do this um he'll get better it will be fine um and I trusted that for a really long time and I really regret that Mm. and I you know as I say I feel really guilty that you know for a long time probably until trying to think is when it finally clicked when I, I I really listened to myself and I was you know really adamant that it wasn't naughtiness it was probably around when he goes nine ten yeah so quite late on you know I believe mm-hmm. professionals for quite a while yeah um, because you do you trust you do. these people yeah of course you do and I think and and I I've got a real personal um relevance to that because I've I've got two children both of them are neurodivergent Olivia my eldest so she was my first I didn't know and I know Hugo's obviously your eldest as well um and it took four years to get her diagnosed because the the pediatric consultant was not actually taking the female presentation into account and I feel guilty that and I thought I know that there's something not not that it's not right because she is right she's perfect but something that's just not what you're saying and it is isn't it it's having that you do you think well they've been to medical school and they've got all these letters after their name you sort of sit there and kind of feel a little bit like you know they should know um but that's that's so interesting and obviously you know if if you're happy to share and if he would be happy to share do you know how Hugo felt about officially getting that diagnosis was it quite significant to him or is he a typical teenage boy and hasn't really you know yeah I mean if that's the really tricky part because diagnosis came so late on yeah um he was very much into being a teenage lad yeah Hugo loves football he loves all those things and he's very very um wary of fitting in yeah and conforming looking like everyone else wearing the black Nike tech tracks mm. you know, he, he is a uniform teenage boy yeah on one hand he was really nonchalant about it mm-hmm. um just pretty much said right okay thanks can we go now yeah okay um got up you know, was happy to just leave, get McDonald's on the way home. Yeah. Um, but another part of him, when obviously I had to broach the subject of who I could mention it to, even talking to the school about it, are you happy for me to pass this information over to the school? Yeah, of course. That was where um, almost diagnosis denial came in. Oh, okay. Um, because I think he was at the age he was, he was beyond that beautiful being able to give the lines of, oh, but it's a superpower. Yes, oh, it's really great. You're different. Yeah. It's wonderful. You're special. Um, he was beyond that. Um, unfortunately, you know, the nice picture books and all of the nice stories that you can can now get for the smaller kids, he wasn't interested. As far mm. as he was concerned, he had witnessed neurodivergent behaviour in other children and he didn't see that in himself. Right. He didn't look like them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and also he didn't want to be stigmatized by that. You know, unfortunately, teens are really, really cruel. Oh, and yeah. um, labels such as neurodivergent, um, autism, all of those labels have become insults that they easily throw around. And mm-hmm. Hugo bore witness to that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, as I say, that's where the diagnosis denial completely kicks in that he doesn't mm-hmm. want anyone to know. Um, he can become quite angry if we mention um, his diagnosis or not use it as an excuse. But if we try to um, plan things and do things and bring it up, um, shuts off, doesn't want to know, doesn't want to hear it. But at the same time, he was engaged in the assessment process and Mm -hmm. talking to other adults, I really trust that at some point he will find it useful. 
it will help him unlock parts of himself mm. um, that are key for his future. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's key because at the end of the day, his diagnosis is his. Exactly. And however he uses that, I mean, as a teenage boy, I mean, I've never been a teenage boy, obviously, <laughs> but I can only imagine that he's not going to really want to probably engage with all that. And you don't want to be different. Yeah. You know, like as adults go, oh, you don't want to be the same. It's all boy. Yeah. You're a child and a teenager. You want to be the same. You want that's to all you want to be. That's all. That's, that's like the main focus. Um, but you like you say, maybe as he gets older, actually, that, that will be a really useful information for him and he can mm-hmm. share it with whoever is. I mean, my brother he's older than me he got diagnosed in his late 30s um and you know he doesn't go around sort of going oh you know hello I'm Mark by the way I'm neurodivergent but that's for him he does disclose it as he feels needs to and with people that he trusts and it makes and it's definitely made him understand himself better which I think is a really great tool isn't it to have um so obviously having you on today is just really interesting with regards to the teenage boy element and obviously you've got um your other your next son down Bruno and there's a really small age gap isn't there between Hugo and Bruno and I know some of the parents that I work with have sometimes two boys one of whom is neurodivergent one who's neurotypical and sometimes they feel that that can cause some friction or some challenges how do you feel the relationship with with Bruno and Hugo specifically with their neurodivergent and neurotypical element how does Mm. that kind of work between the two of them for years it was really tricky so this mm-hmm. 13 and a half months between Hugo wow. and Bruno. So yeah. really, really close, yeah. um, which has been a blessing in that they've been interested in lots of the same things, football, mm-hmm. all sorts of clubs. They've always done the same things together. But as part of that, they've therefore gone everywhere together as a pair yeah. with, for a long time, limited time away from each other. Um, they would share bedrooms, they would play for the same football team, they were at the same school, they'd be in mm-hmm. the same car together, they'd be eating the same meals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And looking back, that's where the friction points were. Okay. Um, I can now clearly see, as plain as day, with hindsight, mm. Hugo needed space. Yeah. You know, really needed space. Mm. Um, and Bruno, being neurotypical to a certain degree, um, just and, and being quite a sensitive and loving and cuddly person um, doesn't want space. Mm-hmm. Um, so for a long, long time, their relationship was explosive. Right. You know, we had the early years where um, toys are snatched and uh, things are thrown um, out of frustration by Hugo, and that would cause Bruno distress and injury. Then it moved on to, um, I guess... Eh, I'd call it sort of um, sibling rivalry mm-hmm. on on speed. You know, it, it's, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it was a case of there's the usual sibling rivalry and explosiveness, but then one of the parties does not in any way understand um, the emotions of the other person. They have no interest in that. Um, that is not their agenda. Um, you know, Hugo's agenda was almost, you know, always very much fight or flight. There was nothing yes. in between. Whereas Bruno might have been somewhere in between and, you know, trying to be in that space. So it was really explosive Mm. for so many years. And the amount of times Bruno got seriously hurt, um, like really, really hurt. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking split lips, um, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, And he really, really struggled with it for lots of years. You know, the usual questions of why does he have to be like that? Yeah. um why can't he be a nice brother 
um, why can't I have such and such as brother? It's heartbreaking to hear, and especially before we had the diagnosis where my answer was predominantly, it's just the way he is. Yeah. Um, that was really, those years were really difficult. I would probably say between the ages of about four and 11. Mm. Sorry, that sounds really like doom that long. <laughs> People in the middle of that are thinking, how long? But I'd probably, but if you've got, you've got more knowledge or if you're listening to this, you're way ahead of the game than I was. But um, I would say, yeah, between four and 11, it yes. was living hell. Yeah. Uh, then, as I say, I started to understand more about Hugo. I started to realise he wasn't naughty. I started to do my own research, my own reading and could understand him better, mm-hmm. which helped me put things in place to make both their lives easier. I started to ensure there was space there. You know, mm-hmm. I started to explain to Bruno that Hugo isn't seeing things through your eyes. This is maybe how he's understanding what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, explaining to Hugo that I understood what he potentially was feeling in that moment and try to explore that with him yeah um you know the meltdowns when he was having a moment of clarity explained that that I could understand that complete brain fog that he might be going through mm. and try and come up with ways with him to make it better yeah um, so then after after about 11 between 11 and 13 I would say it was a real exploration of how their relationship could work And now, here comes the hopeful bit. (laughs) (laughs) Now at 14 and 15, Mm -hmm. dare I say it, they're friends. Amazing. Um, It's almost as though they have been through the toughest journey together and it has brought them together. They are each other's defenders. That's the biggest thing. Bruno will defend Hugo to the ends of the earth. Yes. it's beautiful to watch they move around each other it's a wonderful dance Mm -hmm. that I'm aware Bruno is probably doing a lot more of the leading of that dance Mm -hmm. Um, but they understand each other they guide each other in very different ways they both have their strengths and weaknesses and they understand those Mm -hmm. to the point where even the other day Bruno admitted that well you know when we're old enough It'll probably be me and Hugo moving in together, won't it? Because I don't think he'll be able to work that out himself or I don't <sighs> think he'll have the motivation to actually find somewhere. So I'll do that yeah. and he can come with me. Oh, so, amazing. Yeah. So there is there is a happy ending to that for now. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's been Absolutely. tricky. Yeah, I can I can imagine. And I know that there's lots of parents that I've spoken to and I suppose, and especially when it's the two boys together and they've had a sibling, that sometimes the other, the, the neurotypical sibling Almost in a way, and I know it sounds sad, like initially, but before they understand truly, it's like a grieving process for that yeah. sibling relationship. And like you say, when they're looking oh, at yeah. other people's brothers and go, why can't you be like him? Why are you like this? What's wrong with you? You know, yeah. and I think it's a really important journey, isn't it, to do as a family to really get to grips on what neurodiversity is and how it presents in that understanding. Because... Probably the journey that Bruno's been on is just going to be so empowering for him as a human being going out into the world, isn't it? When he goes and meets, you know, like if he's... He is the most compassionate, kind, um, gentle and patient teenage Mm -hmm. boy I have ever witnessed. Yeah, of course he's a pain, he's selfish, he's grumpy, he's all those other things. He's not perfect. We'd be a bit worried if he wasn't, would you? We'd be broke. (laughs) But at the same time, the character traits he has 
and has um, developed because of the relationship with his brother are yeah. outstanding. Exactly. Really and I love to look at I love to look at these kind of examples and just just to hone because a lot of the sort of like you say, there's so much stigma, isn't there, about neurodiversity and autism and ADHD or whatever it might yeah. be. That actually, when you look at the gifts that it gives and the beauty that can be taken, yeah, granted, between the ages of four and 11, it was hell. <laughs> I'm trying to kind of, you know, let's forget about that. It's all now rosy. It's yeah. taken a lot of work and effort to get there, but what an incredible achievement. Yeah. And, you know, we, Bruno didn't, although Hugo took up a lot of our brain space for a lot of time and yeah. a lot of energy, and, you know, I know that the people listening to this can probably really relate to the exhaustion, the mental yes. exhaustion that, um, living with a neurodivergent child can bring um along with the fact that you're constantly fighting a system i mean that just seems completely crazy that you're battling everything on every front for what feels yeah. like an eternity mm. um the things that i did with bruno in that time so that he wasn't the forgotten child you know yeah. we took a lot of mental health days off school yes um he had and you know I, I dedicated a lot of time to just sitting and being with him because for a long time you know, he was in fear of what Hugo suddenly might do. So yeah. to just sit in his own home mm-hmm. and not have that fear for a day mm-hmm. would recharge his batteries. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to make Hugo out to be a monster in someone's home. Oh no, not at all. Mm-hmm. But those are also the realities that yeah. during that time when Hugo's still figuring out who he was and we were still figuring out you know, who Hugo was, there was volatility there. Of and course. it could be very scary for someone who is seven, eight, nine. Yeah, no, absolutely. And as a sibling, you do by default get caught up in the shrapnel yeah. sometimes when those challenging moments happen. Absolutely. And I think everybody listening will identify um, with those as well. And we're in our house, we're a major fan of reset days, which is kind of what you're saying about mental health days. And sometimes yeah. you've got to step off the treadmill of life mm-hmm. <laughs> and catch your breath. Absolutely. So it kind of leads on nicely because I really want to um, hear from you about probably the very anxiety provoking situation you had recently with your two boys jumping on a plane together and flying <laughs> over to Dubai. I mean, I was like, Ooh, I didn't want to even my child. Like, was that again, like you say, with like Bruno saying, oh, well, when we're older, Hugo probably live with me because he won't be able to fathom it out or he won't be, can't be bothered and he'll just kind of tag along. How was that? Was was Hugo quite happy for Bruno? Because I know Bruno's the younger one. So I kind of, yeah. does he feel a bit like, oh, he's younger than me, but he's kind of more capable of navigating things or was he just quite happy to follow as far as my anxiety was concerned (laughs) I think mine was more through the roof uh so yeah so they went to Dubai to visit relatives and they had to get there on their own obviously on a plane you know you know I didn't just set them off one day with the map and say get to Dubai um so um yeah as far as their dynamics concerned oddly um I trust Hugo a lot more to get them from A to B oh okay um she goes amazing at navigating things you know ever since he was really young you know going to preschool he would know if I took took a wrong turn or if I'd taken a different yeah. route and would immediately be questioning why are you going that way because we're mm-hmm. supposed to be going that way so his sense of um navigation has always been on point Bruno meanwhile oh, he'd forget his head if it wasn't screwed on so yeah I but then at the same time, so Hugo's got the navigation and the practical skills to yeah. get them to the other side of the world. 
<laughs> you know, get to the gate on time, you know, religiously. We need to be there at 1.30 and he will not let you be a minute late because timing is another of Hugo's huge uh, skill sets. Yeah. So he had that skill set. Bruno is more the softener to the general public. Okay. So if they needed to ask for help or right. if they were ordering food or chatting to the guys at security, Bruno is the one to be there with the smile, to be there with the pleases and thank yous and the general conversation. You know, if if someone tried to make a conversation with the boys as they got on the plane or if they mm-hmm. sat down, mm-hmm. um, Bruno's the softener to that because Hugo would just look at someone and just think, well, why are you talking to me? Yeah. Go all, and might even run the risk of telling them to go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're in my space, not interested. Can you please go away? Uh, whereas, yeah, Bruno is the more socially acceptable one of yes. those So they complement each other just absolutely perfectly. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And it looked very much, obviously, from what you've shared on, on Instagram, that they had an absolute ball. I mean, they went to, a, you know, a very, very lovely place. And obviously, they had family to meet them at the other end. Yeah. As a parent, how do you feel about the boundaries of the fact that now that um, Hugo's getting older, what you kind of micromanage for him? Because I can only imagine that if if my two were going somewhere, I would feel the need to tell the people that were receiving them the other end that this might trigger them. If it does, then do this. Or do you just let it unfold naturally? Do you know what I mean? Where's yeah, that no, I, 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 I can completely understand the anxiety of wanting to micromanage it. I think I'm at the stage of letting it go. Okay. You know, I just, and awfully, and I, I realise that this puts a lot of responsibility on him, but I don't think he realises Bruno is there yes so he's an advocate yes bruno knows the buttons that will tip hugo over the edge and in that setting where there's not me to get involved bruno Mm -hmm. won't push those buttons when i'm here bruno's a great button pusher he (laughs) loves he loves tipping over the hugo over the edge sometimes Mm -hmm. last night even arguing over getting in the front of the car again it's sport sometimes but in those scenarios when i'm not there and Bruno knows it matters. Yeah. He can read the situations and navigate them to a certain degree. Hugo, mind you, that's that's taking credit away from Hugo because mm. he's become really good at navigating those scenarios as well. Mm-hmm. He knows when to take himself off. He knows when he just yeah. put his headphones in and shut off from the world. So, yeah, Hugo needs to be credited for that as well, that he can manage himself in those situations a lot too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, that's a good point because I'm kind of looking at it from my children being 12 and nine going abroad at the age of 12 and nine. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, fast forward a few years and obviously it's amazing that it's amazing that they've got such a great bond that they're able to do that. And what an amazing advocate they've got in each other. And like you say, you know, you go get them to the plane on time and yeah. Bruno will chat to the person sitting next to them. It's, it's yeah. a great, it's a great double act. Absolutely great double act. So with, um, Hugo as well going through the mainstream education system that was something that was really important to him wasn't it to remain in mainstream and how's that been for you to help I know that's probably that's not only you know how long have we got I know but just if you you can just kind of sum up where he is is now and obviously the challenges that you face getting him there it's been a non-stop challenge yeah um so at every single turn I think um the suspensions started in about year four or five 
Um, you know, we were up to quite a few day suspension in one term. Um, we explored two managed moves, one in primary school, um, mm. one in secondary school, both of which failed miserably. You know, I hate using the word failed, but ultimately it wasn't mm-hmm. Hugo that failed. It was the system. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've tried things like that. He's been referred to um, an alternative provision. Mm-hmm. Again, didn't work out. They, they weren't prepared for someone like Hugo. So at every single turn, there has been challenges. Um, you know, meetings nonstop, emails nonstop. Um, but Hugo, as you say, has been adamant that he has wanted to remain in mainstream school. And I think that's twofold. It's um, hugely important to Hugo to have the friends that he knows. Um, we're lucky that we've lived in the same place ever since Hugo was little so he went to the primary school that's local to us Mm -hmm. and then that feeds on to the secondary school so he's had familiar faces throughout and although he's not necessarily still friends as such with some of those children they're familiar faces who know Hugo Um, and in the same way Bruno is they they would be his defenders some of those kids they've seen him struggle they've seen him at his worst Mm. but they're still happy to step in there for him if needed so I think that's really important for Hugo having those familiar faces and because he's a really um, social kid you know he bucks that trend of um, you know neurodivergent kids they're not very good with friends Hugo is partly through desperation to be popular and wanting to have friends Mm. Um, his friends are really really important to him Mm-hmm. And he couldn't fathom the idea of making friends elsewhere. So mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons that he's refused to leave the school he's at. <laughs> um, secondly, is again, stigma. It's that those kids in that other school mm-hmm. you know, that might be better suited to Hugo, um, they don't look like me. Mm-hmm. They don't play elite football like me. How am I going to yeah. do sports? Because they don't have a football team. Yeah. Um, so that was the other reason that Hugo would never um, see himself at a more maybe specialist provision yeah. because he just can't see himself fitting in there, even though on many levels mm-hmm. it would have made his life easier. He would have been better supported and mm-hmm. you know, his life may be better. But these are the decisions that I had to trust Hugo to make. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think as well, there's kind of, it swings and roundabouts, isn't it? Like with the specialist provision, perhaps maybe a lot of other areas would have been better supported but when you're taking away two very very crucial things for him because you do with the specialist provision you know they don't have the football teams or the sports or, yeah. the, or whatever it might be and if that is in, hugely important and I absolutely just incidentally I absolutely love the fact that he was manager's man of the year yeah. wasn't it yeah. you know manager's player manager's player thank you that's what I'm trying to say <laughs> um which, I mean, for you must be amazing because I think hasn't that been a, a tricky situation is, is getting him into the right kind of out-of-school clubs because of, you know, because yeah. he struggled like the winning and the losing element and that, you know, like a yeah. lot of, you know, new we've, we've been through so many football clubs. Um, you know, the, the first one, I, I think I vaguely alluded to it recently when he did get his manager's player th- this yeah. season. Um, the first football club, our local village football club, um, Bruno and him had played out for a year or two and um, there'd been a silly incident where I think someone's fingers had been bent back and um, Hugo mm-hmm. was involved. You know, I'm not saying he didn't do anything, mm-hmm. um, but he was a tricky customer at that age. He was sort of seven-ish. Um, and you know, we signed up for the next year thinking, great. And the chairman came round to our house 
knocked on the door and basically handed me the check back and said, I'm afraid Hugo's not welcome back next year. Wow. And I was just taken aback. You know, it was it was a real sucker punch. Yeah. Um, of how how cruel the world can be to children that don't fit in, to be honest. That yeah. was that was one of my first experiences of oh crap, you know. Mm. My my child's being rejected. Yes. And well, not only was that hard enough for me to have to deal with as a parent, but to then have to try and <laughs> sell that as a win to my neurodivergent seven-year-old. Yeah. As it was, we moved on to another club. They they were great for a certain amount of time. Um, but you know, there's always going to be tricky trickiness in, in sport, you know, things like starting on the bench, but you don't know you're going to. Um, lots of um yeah. things that, that you can't control. Mm. Um so for a few years we were another football team. Anyway, get on to the main point, Jess. The main point is <laughs> we found we found um the football team that Hugo's now at. And purely by chance, really, Bruno was was playing a game there and Hugo said, I like the look of that team. Could you go speak to that manager, please? I did. Mm-hmm. The guy seemed like a great guy. So we've now been there. I think this is Hugo's about fourth season with them, third, fourth mm-hmm. season with them. But as it transpired, um, you know, his, his coach, Nick, who I publicly say is Nick, um, is a great, calm guy, knows mm-hmm. what to say to Hugo, when to say it to Hugo, and also when not to say anything to Hugo. But as it transpired, and this was the beauty of it, that when we got Hugo's diagnosis last year, and I explained to Nick, if you're finding Hugo a little bit tricky, this might be why. Mm-hmm. Um, this might explain a, a few things for you, Nick. And he turned around and said, oh, my son's narrative version too. And has exactly the same diagnosis. Oh, that's why you're so good at this. Yeah. It just, it just all clicked into place. So we are super lucky to have found uh, Nick and the team yeah. and as you say the icing on the cake mm-hmm. came the other week when Hugo got manager's player and oh, it just means the world to him to be recognized as doing something right absolutely absolutely and I think first of all when that they they returned your check you know it's just such a shame that people don't they the first thought is let's just get rid of them because they're a problem rather than what can we do to help yeah. You know, that doesn't seem to be people, a lot of people, and that you say is a, a bit of a cruel world. And then you find somebody that's got just a bit of an experience yeah. of neurodiversity because they've got a neurodivergent son and look what can happen. Yeah. Um, it's Magic just incredible. Things. Isn't it? It's, it's absolutely yeah. amazing. And I think as well, because like you say, when, you know, especially like maybe with, with Hugo throughout school life where things have been challenging for him, he must always feel like whenever you're getting a phone call or an email, it's something negative. Mm. So, to, you know, and I think when I was looking for a photo of you for the um, marketing for this podcast and I was going for your Instagram with your permission and I saw the photo that I got and I thought it was a really lovely one. And when I clicked on it, I was like, that definitely has to be it because the post is all about the fact that you just received an email saying oh, that Hugo yeah. had done something really good at school. Yeah. How does that feel? I mean, over the years as a parent that you're just forever hearing it's, negatives. It's unbelievable I mean I almost feel sorry for parents that almost have more of a conformist child Mm. because I'm not sure they can they can experience the same level of joy when Mm. you get a good report from school Mm. um so I always feel sorry for them Mm. um you know because it's such a joy and yeah I know there's been some really really rubbish lows in order to feel that high but um yeah they're few and far between the, the positive emails or phone calls 
Um, so yeah, to get them or to get a, you know get awards and things like that, it's it's the icing on what has been a really tricky cake to make. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing that I just wanted to kind of get your insight on a bit as well, because again, this is a quite a common situation with a lot of families is the blended family dynamic yeah. <laughs> we've got that going on too you've got, you've got it all going on oh, yeah. in your house it's amazing um but obviously you've got your partner and who you share Casper with your youngest son yes. you've got Hugo and Bruno from a previous relationship and your partner's got two sons is that right from a previous yeah. relationship? so how have you found bringing the families together specifically with regards to Hugo being neurodiverse how has how has that been has that caused any kind of friction or have you had to try and kind of be an interpretation you know like sort of you know translate Hugo at times to try and yeah it was it was really really difficult for quite a few years Russ and I've been together uh, nearly 10 years now Mm -hmm. so Hugo and Bruno were five and six Mm. when we first got together so quite early on and mid that kind of nightmarish phase I mentioned um so um it's been it's been tough um and again before diagnosis um there was a lot of well why is he like that yeah you know family days out were completely ruined Mm -hmm. um family holidays have been tainted all those sorts of things um and but that's not just because of Hugo Mm -hmm. that's because of all of our dynamic of interacting with one of Mm -hmm. with each other it's um it's a whole lot of um, almost, um, it's a whole lot of pinging off each other that has created those issues. But yeah, it, it hasn't been easy to the point where, um, as you probably know, uh, after the first lockdown or one of the many lockdowns, mm-hmm. we all needed a lot more space. Yeah. And the best thing for us was to fortunately live in two separate houses. You know, mm-hmm. Luckily, we could afford to do that. Yeah. So um I, when I say I took Hugo, Bruno and Casper, it was all discussed, but we went and lived in one house. We rented another house and Russ stayed with his boys in our house Mm -hmm. just so we could all have more space to breathe. We desperately needed space um, to recharge and to learn to reconnect with each other again. And space is an amazing thing to be able to see things a lot clearer. Absolutely. So, yeah, so we we spent 18 months living apart. and it did us all the world of good. I, I appreciate that it's not possible for everyone to get that space. So I'm incredibly grateful for that. And we've moved back in together <laughs> in the last three weeks. Um, <laughs> we're still living out of boxes. Um, but yeah, we've moved back in together in the last three weeks. There's six of us full time yeah. in our house. So there's um, Hugo, Bruno, Casper, who are my three boys. Um, Russell's 20 year old. Noah also lives with us full time. Oh. Russ and I and Marley um, Russell's eighteen-year-old. So you're going to need a family tree for everyone to keep we up. Are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the eighteen-year-old uh, Marley comes um, sort of alternate weekends and days in between whenever he fancies. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a lot going on, but so far so good. Amazing. I think. Yes. Yeah. But, and yeah. And um, Hugo's found coming back in the, the change. He's he's navigated that okay yeah because in that 18 months we received the diagnosis yeah of course and we all had a lot more time to discuss um 
you know, best ways of moving around each other, dealing with each other. Um, mm. I had time to sit down with Russell and explain, you know, I'll be honest, and he probably would too, that he was quite sceptical mm. about a diagnosis. You know, like lots of people are, you know, they, they've got a, um, they, they have a clear vision of what they imagine neurodivergent people to be, whether that's not making eye contact, whether yeah. that's, you know, um, not being able to do certain things. And Hugo does buck a lot of those um, stereotypical traits. Yeah. Um, so Russell was quite sceptical. Mm. So to explain to him, you know, Hugo's isms and schisms and the way that mm-hmm. he thrives if we do X, Y, Z and the way that he'll react if we do X, Y, Z, we had time to do that. Um, so that we could all move back in together kind of on the same page yeah no absolutely and I think as well and I know from my personal point of view when dealing with schools when getting the diagnosis and when dealing with friends and family talking about it in, in particular it all comes down to just really effective communication and just mm-hmm. actually having really good open conversations and especially as your your children your stepchildren they're obviously young adults now and get into that age where actually they can handle some honest and frank yeah. conversations and actually they're much more capable than maybe we think they are and yeah. you know and can be understanding which is which is amazing um and it just lends itself I think as well to just educating people even if it's in your own family circle about how neurodiversity presents in so many different ways and people have such a preconceived idea about what being neurodiverse looks like or means and actually think okay I found that definitely with both both mine if I had a pound for every time someone said well they don't look oh yeah you know like well what does that look like you know um but but society does have this kind of preconceived yeah don't they which you know but that's that's absolutely brilliant to be able to kind of help with that awareness so just to kind of tie it up just because you have just like filled us with so much sort of inspiration and it's been wonderful to hear your story um and thank you so much for sharing it what would be your top tip or tips for parenting a, a teenage neurodivergent son, apart from gin and breathing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, my top tip top would tip. be really learn to let it go. Yeah. Um, I look back at myself when the boys were younger and just think I really get stressed out about a whole lot of stuff that wasn't really important. Yeah. And these days, if Hugo says something is snappy uh you know even colorful language Mm -hmm. or bed not made a million and one things that you know I could get snappy and say you know make your bed open your curtains for god's sake don't leave your shoes there you know don't talk to me like that it's not worth it Mm -hmm. it's really not um and I know you know maybe parents of neurotypical children think really you're going to let your kids get away with that yeah, I am. Mm. Because for the greater good of our household mm. and for peace and for Hugo's well-being, those things aren't that important. No, absolutely. Pick your battles. That's a that's a favourite saying in our house as well. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, absolutely amazing. I am so grateful to you for taking the time to come and share your story with us. And I know that so many people listening are going to be really, it's just nice to hear that other people are experiencing similar things and are going through. And if they're 
children are a bit younger it's going to be really inspiring to hear you know just how you you guys have kind of grown as a family over the you know those those years as well um so thank you so much and thank you for having me oh absolute pleasure and like I say if anybody doesn't follow Jess on Instagram do hop over to the only girl in the house it's a lovely account to follow she does share bits and pieces um, with regards to all of our family but obviously as, as well as Hugo which is just so great to kind of you know engage with and, and follow and yeah just amazing stuff so keep doing what you're doing Jess I love following you and, and being inspired by you so thank you Blimey. so much thank you <laughs> now your head's really big yeah you know, that's a great way to go me. into the weekend <laughs> amazing thank you so much thank you Claire